Hello, I'm Lee Wild, Head of Equity Strategy at Interactive Investor. Today I'm talking to fund manager Ben Rogoff, who's run the Polar Capital Technology Investment Trust since 2006. Good morning, Ben. Morning. As I say, you've run the trust since 2006. Um, it's now worth around nine times what it was when you took over. Uh, could you please explain to our listeners some of the drivers that have enabled the outperformance? Yes, I mean, it's been a, a terrific time for the technology sector. And, and for most of that time, of course, it's also been great for, for, for global equity markets. But I mean, the principal driver of, of, the, of the return of the, of the trust that I manage is, of course, the performance of the tech sector. Um, and, you know, the first two or three years of my tenure as, as manager um, were trickier. The sector was still really recovering from the kind of post-2000 bubble uh, and very much underperforming um, in what was a reasonable tape. And of course, Q financial crisis, the sector actually ended up um, making a low before the broader market. And in fact, that was really the first evidence, the first sort of inkling we got that the sectors, uh, I guess, that the excess of the bubble had been fully worked out. And actually, from that point onwards, really, with very little interruption, the tech sector has outperformed. So how did you position the fund during the financial crisis? Well, I mean, I think we, it's fair to say that we were, we had been constructive like many um, in those sort of like final years, I suppose, prior to the crisis itself. And then we were reasonably quick to sort of take a different action, remove, you know, move the portfolio to a slightly more defensive stance um, in the beginning of 2008. Uh, and, and that really involved sort of reducing longer duration stocks, trying to get back to you know, valuations that were very well supported by balance sheets and, and, and earnings today, uh, but not losing sight of the fact that we had a long-term thesis that was really about the internet, about the internet delivery mechanism, which we now call the cloud. And so we didn't get rid of our names that we felt were the best ways of playing that theme. And in fact, as the market fell, and as we started to reach levels where we could you know, make very good sense of the, of the forward multiples of those next generation winners, we actually rotated the portfolio towards them. So companies like Salesforce.com, for example, and others um, that we felt were, were winners of the next cycle. Uh, and they indeed were the first stocks to, to, to bottom and have ended up you know, leading for much of this, this cycle. So raised cash, got a bit more defensive, but then ultimately uh, got the money in. Uh, and indeed, at the lower of the market, we were fully invested, you know, we had no cash. We all know that you know tech's had a, a spectacular ball run um, since the, uh, the, the the great financial crisis. So um, interesting, really, to know. I mean, what is it you look for in in, in long term holdings and uh, in any potential new investments? Well, I mean, ultimately, we're growth investors. We're not growth at any price investors, um, but we're not you know wedded to. The first thing we do is try to identify key themes large market opportunities and hopefully identify winners, uh, companies that can make, you know, become very large against those investment opportunities. Uh, the second thing we do is then look at valuation. And so I think this is a kind of something that maybe other, other investors uh, do the other way around. You know, they look at what the price is and then identify if that's something they're interested in. And for us, the process is very much trying to identify those key themes. And, and so, you know, we've been full part, fully participants in things like e-commerce, uh, online advertising, software as a service, some of the most important and powerful investment themes of the last 10 years. Um, we've, we've really ensured that we've had exposure to throughout mm -hmm. because of that focus on where is the growth and where is the change occurring in the sector. Yeah, okay. and, and so I, I, yeah, I, it's tech, that means primarily US, um, I guess. I know you've got a you know, heavy weight into to, to North America. So in terms of meeting the companies and, and sort of the thought process that goes on at, at Polar when you're thinking about investing in new companies or, or even keeping existing holdings, I mean, how do you, you know, 
you're you regular visitor to the states and, and and sort of what's what are the internal discussions that go on so we, i'm very lucky i joined a firm uh, in 2003 polar um that had been founded by two gentlemen that ran the henderson technology franchise back in the day and um as a kind of core uh, franchise at Polar Capital, we've always had the resource that we've needed, hopefully, to, to deliver returns for our, our, our shareholders and our unit holders. And so um, we've been well resourced throughout what was a tricky time for tech at the beginning. Uh, and now more recently, you know, we've, we've added to our team. So it's not just Ben Rogoff. Uh, it's very much not Ben Rogoff. We're, we're a team of nine uh, investment professionals. I've been running the team with Nick Evans since 2007. Fatima Yu has worked with me since 2005. Just this year, we've added two new, very strong individuals to a, what was, I think, already a world-class team. Mm -hmm. And so the answer to the question is you work really hard. You make sure that the people that work with you are, are super smart and, and super incentivized to go out there and, and, and you know, meet companies and go to uh, trade shows and do the sort of stuff that you need to do in order to be a domain expert, which is ultimately what we are. So the way that we ultimately run the money is trying to create a, a top-down framework of thought. And I do this every year with a very long strategy paper, which is for my board and for um, for, for holders, which, which really outlines where we think we are in, in penetration terms in key themes. And this is critical because ultimately, I'm a believer that money flows from the controversial to the obvious. I also believe that human act in a very sort of non-linear way you know adoption curves very much follow this concept of an s-curve where early adopters you know plod along but then something magical happens and then everybody wants the smartphone everybody wants the flat panel tv everybody wants whatever at which point the forward earnings estimates on companies are frequently wrong and so if you go back to google at the ipo this is a company that when it when it listed in 2005 i believe um came public on a forward PE of 80 times. And most people thought, oh my gosh, that's you know nosebleed forward valuations. And then two years after that IPO, the company was making more money at net income level than it was modeled to be making in revenues. Mm -hmm. And so very frequently, because change occurs in a nonlinear way, the parameters, the investment tools that people use in order to gauge value are frequently wrong. That's a great point, because valuation for tech investors or rather non-tech investors looking at tech, you, you're put off by these or you can be put off by these these valuations. And I think it's only in sort of you know, the past few years, really, people have started to become more comfortable with uh, PE valuations. I mean, I, I remember sort of ASOS and some of those online retailers trading at 50 times earnings, some of them may still be, and everybody you know, dismissing them as an, an investment because how can they be trading on 50 times earnings? It was just trying to become adjusted to this new way of, uh, or these, 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 as you say, nosebleed valuations. When you look at tech stocks and you look at a potential new investment, do you even bother looking at price earnings? I mean, there are loads of other variables and, and factors at play. What, what, what are your key, what are the big things that you look for? Well, well, I think firstly, price earnings is absolutely fine as a valuation metric for a company where margins are at and around uh, a terminal target amount. So for a Google, we absolutely use a forward PE to value it, or Apple, because these are businesses where the margins are well understood, and that's not the key uh, delta in the valuation um, in, in the model. And so PE is absolutely fine for businesses where they are already looking like they ought to look. Uh, what, what PE is a very blunt tool, where it doesn't work, in our opinion, um, is well for, for a couple of things. Firstly, where a company is investing for growth. So the, 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 the difference here, you know, and we are very this is a very important distinction for us. You know, we have no issue with investing in companies that are loss-making. That is not, however, uh, as, as a broader stroke as it sounds, what we want are our companies to be within two years of 
cash flow break even at most. Now, occasionally we'll make an exception. We can talk about Uber and we could talk about Netflix, companies that do require capital. But if you look at the trust today, less than 1% of our assets are explained by companies that require capital. We're not interested in supplying capital to businesses. We are shareholders in businesses that don't require capital as a rule. Now, you could be loss making because you may be growing so fast or attacking an opportunity so vast that it makes absolute sense to spend all of your net income on investing in new sales teams new offices around the world and that playbook has been incredible for us because in this new model of software delivery in the cloud which is all about renting of course compute renting software rather than buying it businesses now instead of selling something for a pound are maybe renting them for 25p in that but the cost of course of those businesses are the same and so businesses that are um, at the kind of forefront of this rental model of compute will not look cheap, of course, on a forward PE until they probably cease to be interesting investments because their growth rates will have normalized. And so I think this is this is key. We are very valuation sensitive. We are we never invest in a business uh, just because it's a great business with no with no uh, with no consideration of valuation. And in fact right now there are, I don't know, maybe ten companies in the in, in the US technology market that we would love to hold as potential winners in the next round of this cycle. But we own none of them because we're effectively priced out based on where they currently trade. Are you happy to name some of those, Ben? Uh, <laughs> well, we're currently in the middle of a, a kind of a growth correction. Um, companies that we don't hold that we think are very well positioned, mm. uh, companies like CrowdStrike in, uh, and Zscaler, um, both, I think, winners, actually, in, in the security uh, side of the software market. Uh, we're not current holders of those stocks. Atlassian, um, which is another very interesting kind of DevOps software company. We've owned it before uh, and we took profits not that long ago. Um, and that's a name that we would almost certainly look to re revisit um, if valuations continue to come in. So the, the, the most important takeaway for me is that, and again, this applies to also emerging themes and new areas in the portfolio. And of course, you know, we'll be talking about some themes in a minute, but one of the things that you do get when you invest with us, and of course, I'm sure other teams too, is there's a whole bunch of emerging stories in tech that may not be good for today, but that we need to be prepared for tomorrow. And, and the same thing applies with some of these high flyers that we might not hold today, but we've done the work, we're meeting them all the time. We're doing the pipelines for IPOs, for example. We may not go for, you know, we go for a handful of IPOs a year as a team, but we're doing the work so that if, um, you know, all of the, the boxes are ticked at any given moment, then we can then we can move. We can pounce. Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, I mean, the, your top five holdings at the end of July, Microsoft, at Google, Alphabet, um, Apple, um, Facebook, and Alibaba. Everybody knows knows the names. All great companies. Are these ones to keep, or are you? But, but clearly, you 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 you've got to take profit sometime. I mean. But all of these are more more long term. You think as things stand? Well, these are winners, aren't they? I yeah. mean, and ultimately, um, you know, as a rule, I think it, it's absolutely right to run winners. If you know, I think ultimately you. You want your portfolio to be, I mean, the way I think about the portfolio in, as a whole is you're trying to uh, pull together uh, 100, 110 different stocks that in aggregate will drive growth uh, above the benchmark growth and to try not to overpay for that, what we believe is a superior portfolio. And at any given moment, the investment trust really since I can remember has delivered somewhere between 30 and 50% more earnings growth 
um, and in exchange for 20 to 30% being 20 to 30% more expensive if you look at the, say, EV sales metric, uh, forward EV sales metric on the portfolio. And so, um, so I will continue to hold Facebook, uh, Apple, Alphabet too. These are stocks, by the way, that are very large in our benchmark, and we are benchmark aware. We've always set out our stall as being benchmark aware. And so right now, the active share in the portfolio has been sort of ebbing and flowing around 50%. And so I think in the industry, there's a sort of negative perception that, you know, everybody has to be running enormous active share these days and blah, blah, blah. I am very lucky that my index is chock-a-block full of fabulous businesses. And so I'm, I'm hugely comfortable with 50% active share. I've been able to hold and run winners like Alphabet since IPO, Facebook since IPO. Um, Apple I bought actually in 2003 and have had a position ever since. And these have really been the engine room, of course, of the performance of the trust. Um, and, and so we'll hold, we'll hold those stocks as long as the risk reward remains favorable. Having said that, we are also aware that I think quite a bit of the value that we've added over the years has come from selling companies that have once been perceived as winners that I would, you know, I would characterize as sort of falling into the shadows. And we have held Yahoo, for example, in the past. And that's a stock that we exited a long time ago, IBM. You know, when Warren Buffett was extolling its virtues, we were feeling very uncomfortable having not you know, held it for a while. Yeah. Oracle, former winner. And again, these are all great businesses, but not our type of investment. And, and so nothing, nothing uh, that you see in the top five is there because it's in the top five and therefore will persist. It, they persist there if they remain attractive investments. I was speaking at a seminar recently, and we were talking about the economic cycle. So where we are in it, the implications for growth stock. I mean, to me, it looks like we're we're certainly late cycle. I don't, I don't think any you know, a few people would argue with that. But I mean, there, if 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 we are, then um, clearly the next uh, um, next you know, phase is is downwards. But I mean, what are the implications for tech um, for tech investors? Um, again, it, we, we've talked about valuations and, and and the possibility of a uh, of a sharp correction. So it'd be interesting to see how what your view is now. I mean, are you are you getting nervous? Are you just you know, happy to, to 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 run your positions and not try and um, you know, be clever and try and predict what's going to happen next, or do you wait for events to unfold? I studied history um, at, at university, and one of the things that I certainly came away from that experience uh, was that um, most of the time in, as nothing happens. Uh, and so we as humans, uh, historians certainly, um, always gravitate to those events, those, those momentous moments, you know, uh, and, and I think that's very much the case with equity markets where you know there's a lot of Cassandras, there's always a Cassandra out there telling you that the end of the world is nigh. And this has indeed, like you say, been a very long bull market. We are probably, uh, from an economic cycle perspective, um, in what would be classically called late cycle. So I think there's, a, there's an awful lot of reasons to be nervous, but I have to tell you that those reasons or many of, there have been many reasons to be nervous throughout this duration of this, you know, this longest bull market ever. And so I think on, on, on the margin, we're slightly more conservatively positioned. I mean, the cash level is at 6%, 5%, 6 I probably average something like 2 to 3% this cycle. So definitely higher than average. We've also laid in uh, a tiny amount of NASDAQ puts to protect us, uh, to really try and take the portfolio beta uh, back towards a market beta. Um, and let the stocks do the talking, if you like. But these are fairly modest changes. There's no, the core shape of the portfolio is still constructive. And I think there's a couple of things I would just add to it. I mean, we probably are late, late cycle, but you know, what a strange cycle this is. Um, and to have 
you know, for me, the bedrock of the bull market has been this alignment of interest between shareholders and policymakers. And you know, anyone that came into this industry over the last 10 years would think this was normal. Mm. You know, the stock market falls and in comes the Fed to save the day. And any, you know, if you look to the history of financial markets, it's just not normal. And, and that alignment of interest has ultimately been driven by the policymakers' fear that, of deflation more than inflation. And just look at what the Fed has done you know, earlier this year, this vault fast that they made in terms of monetary policy. Um, you know, very unusual to see a US president haranguing a, a central bank, but he is, and they've responded. Uh, and so the, the, that kind of bedrock of the bull market is still alive and well. So the big uncertainty for me, actually, is really all about trade. And I have no you know, insight here that you don't have or anybody else has. My gut feel is, that a deal will ultimately be, you know, found, uh, because both sides remain, I think, believe that an out, you know, a positive outcome is a desirable thing. But brinksmanship is likely to persist, uh, probably until nearer the election or till the China economy can't be, you know, propped up with another round of stimulus. So that volatility that we've seen, we saw in Q4 last year, we've seen recently in some growth to value rotation, I think is going to persist, which really explains the cash, because the cash becomes more valuable on those down days where I can sort of put it to work. Yeah. Well, you mentioned Trump. And we're going into election year 2020. Now, again, at my seminar, I, I, I would, I'm firmly of the view that Trump will not let the US um, fall into recession uh, in an election year. I, I can't see it happening. Is that your view as well? I know, I know, I agree. Trade is is very important, and I'm sure he can use it. He can strike a deal. He can package it up, and everybody thinks Trump's great. He's done the deal with China. He's 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 shown them who's boss, and then that's great in election year as well. So I can't, and he, and he is turning the screw on 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 Jerome Powell at the Fed as well. So he's. That's kind of what you're, 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 yeah. you believe as well. Yeah, I think so. I think we, we, we're broadly. I mean, the only the thing I'm nervous about is that I think that's now the kind of consensus view. I mean, the consensus view is that a deal is done before the election. If one isn't done before the election, I think with chances our markets are lower, or certainly it's going to be a rockier, rockier ride. You know, when you think about the the big dislocation in in, in risk assets right now, of course, this this you know polarization, bond yields at whatever levels we've never seen before, and half the world trading with negative yields, and banks in Denmark giving away you know, negative interest rate mortgages, and Germany selling you know thirty year paper with one hundred and three with a zero coupon is pretty spectacular stuff. My, my sense is a deal will be done. And I also think you're quite right, which is that that Trump's haranguing of of power is you get monetary policy, you you know on side, um, and you probably draw down inventories uh, because of uncertainty right now. And then, of course, just in time for the election, if you're you know if you believe this stuff, just in time for the election, you get the deal done, whatever that deal looks like. You get the rebuild of inventories. You've got monetary policy behind you. Things start to look a bit like '98, '99, where you know the Fed acted at that time, of course to counter sort of external things that were happening much like they've been doing, they've just done this year. So yeah, I, I, I'm constructive, you're constructive, um, uh, and of course therein lies the risk. Yeah, absolutely. And, and they, they, there, is, there just seems to be this sort of comfortable with, with you know, looser monetary policy, there's, there's still firepower, there's, there's something left for the, the central banks to do. I guess it's at the end of the day, it's when that, that fails is when we're, we're in trouble. But sort of, I'd, I'd like to sort of just um, talk a little bit about, and again, in your decision-making process, I don't know whether this sort of features, but the theory of increasing returns mm. and how the, you know, it's the uh, standard, it becomes standard economic theory 
theory now, uh, and with the outgoing, without going into sort of all the detail, it's sort of basically these these big tech companies. Uh, it's become very sort of you know, pertinent for the tech sector, uh, knowledge industries, whereby they they become leaders in a niche. They attract extra audience, or they or, or, or they they. they they become the the go-to technology, and that snowballs um, into what you you have as the, these big sort of um, hundreds of billion dollar um, um, tech companies. Now, is this something that you think can identify you know, the Googles and um, Alibabas of of tomorrow? Yeah, look, I think the. You know, again, I think I've already said this, but you know, money flows are the controversial to the obvious, and I think that when you look at, uh, you know, I think the big winners of the last ten years of not all, but certainly been gravi- they gravitated towards the tech sector where the likes of Apple and Google and Facebook more recently um, have all um, been able to deliver r- phenomenal returns. I'm not talking about stock market returns. I mean, actual you know, revenues and net income uh, driven by the network effect. Um, and there are lots of different ways to describe this, but you know, the flywheels and blah, blah, blah. But really what you're talking about are very large networks where um, that are, able, are so large that experts or formal ways of organizing things get just disrupted, hugely disrupted, because I don't need the expert at the, what was in the center of what was a much smaller network. So a travel agent, I don't know, a bank manager, or who knows, fund manager, um, become um, slightly less relevant in a world where there are billions of people talking about stuff and communicating with you know, themselves. And, and so, yes, I am a huge believer in that. Um, and I think that when you look at the size of the number of people that use Facebook monthly, my understanding is that really there's only been two, I think, two political systems ever, some caliphate back in the day, uh, but also the British Empire. I mean, the British Empire at its peak uh, could, as a percentage of the world population, had less people under its control or you know, on its network than Facebook does today. And so again, we've all grown up with these very large numbers and it's all very normal that you know, Google has five apps or six apps now with more than a billion people using them you know, all the time. Um, it's not normal. Uh, these are, you know, this, is, this is a phenomena associated with the smartphone. The smartphone is really the root cause and of course behind the smartphone is the internet, of course. And so those, the combination of the internet, mobility, smartphone, create these new networks. And of course, that's why and again, we're, we're, on, you know, we're on this trade. That's why there is an attraction associated with companies like an Uber um, or a Netflix, where you get to a, hopefully a size where you then have pricing power or you become something that looks much more like a natural monopoly than one of, of, of a number of companies. And so, you know, again, earlier we talked about loss-making businesses. You know, the only time I would ever reach out and, and invest, and it would be in a very modest way, because we don't tend to do binary investments, is because you think there's a possibility that in its in some kind of mature you know in the future the losses that uber are making of course the losses that you make are the barriers to entry for someone else and again that's a very crude comment but ultimately if if if, uh, if it's going to take 20 billion for uber to get to a point where it becomes a duopoly in every market around the world i think the share price would be an awful lot higher than where it is today but of course there are multiple myriad risks to that to that outcome so i'm a huge believer in the network effect of course that's also why the, the, the regulators are sort of becoming a little bit noisier circling some people might argue some of these assets because of course the the, the good news i mean the good news about these networks are is that we as consumers have just got phenomenal utility from things like google maps take google maps as one example but google search just think how empowering you know when i had to find your office this morning 
Um, there it was, Google Maps. Um, and and I think as consumers, we've become we, 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 we've been huge beneficiaries of these network effects. Um, but you could also make an argument that says that once you you get such critical mass like some of these networks now have, it actually becomes pretty difficult for other companies to operate without being pulled in. Uh, into that sphere of influence, so you, you can. There is an argument to be made that that says a tighter regulatory environment might encourage uh, a bit more entrepreneurship. Having said that, there are still three hundred and something odd unicorns with a billion dollar market caps right now. So clearly, small companies are still doing well. Um, but yes, we're, we're definitely believers in the network effect. Great. Okay. Well, um, I mean, we've, we've talked about some of the the, the stocks in the uh, in, in the portfolio and. Um, but I mean, again, something you'll have themes. I know, I know there are several themes that you're you're playing within the within the funds. So, what is the key one? We haven't got time to talk about them all. But I mean, if you could pick a couple of the ones that sort of might sort of resonate with with listeners, and perhaps which theme are you most excited about, or is there another sort of big payday elsewhere? Well, I think we have eight core themes in the portfolio, and as you say, we can't talk about them in this in this setting, but. I mean, I think the big theme, of course, is the internet, and it's not a theme. It's a it's a it's a general purpose technology around which everything else is sort of being rethought, much like I suppose electricity would have been or steel might have been in the past. And so here's the internet. Everything now has to be rethought around it, um, and that isn't a theme, but it is the kind of kernel of what we what we are interested and excited about. I suppose. A couple of things that sit on top of the the internet that really excites us. The first one um, I, I would highlight just remains software. And again, right now the, the stocks are sort of in retreat. They've had an amazing run. They're, this is an industry that has almost no China exposure. So in a world where we're not we're worrying about trade, then investors have been kind of hiding out in uh, the software sector. But the reason that we really like the space is because ultimately businesses need to reinvent themselves uh, in a number of ways to remain relevant in a world of Generation Zers that have an eight second attention span that are wedded to their smartphones. And if you can't check out of a shopping basket within three clicks, you're probably leaving. And, and so there's a whole focus on the consumer experience, the CX, uh, the customer journey. Uh, and we have a whole bunch of companies in the portfolio that play on that, companies like Zendesk, Salesforce.com, which we've owned also since IPO. And then there's the software companies that help companies, you know, just make decisions faster. Because in a world of, I don't know, Revoluts and Amazon's buying Whole Foods and disruption occurring in industries, then... It, Existing businesses need to be able to deliver an experience that also looks similar. And so companies like Anaplan, uh, Cooper, um, ServiceNow, businesses need to automate their business processes like never before because that's how you reduce the time to decision making that things like machine learning and artificial intelligence ultimately promise. So those two software buckets. And then lastly, so that's one theme kind of, uh, the other one would be 5G. And so I think probably listeners have heard this 3G and 4G, and here we go again, it's 5G, and what's so special about 5G? And again, just to be clear, we're not investing in telecom operators. Um, we don't mean Nokia and Ericsson in the portfolios. Um, they might be fine investments, but they're not where we're focused. But 5G is hugely interesting to us. Um, firstly, from an infrastructure perspective, um, and you can see this in the trade negotiations with China and the US, which is 5G and the role of Huawei is definitively a fault line in those negotiations. And it's a fault line because China has the lead. Um, and so you can see why Huawei is very much in the kind of you know the the, the, the target I suppose of, of the president. Five um, G infrastructure is critical. 
if we're ever going to have autonomous vehicles, for example, if the industrial internet of things is ever going to be you know, more than a slideware, we are going to need to have uh, 5G, which is much, much faster, and where the latency is much better, orders of magnitude better than 4G. And that will be critical in a world where cars are communicating with the edge of the network. And so the last 10, 15 years, and, and for the foreseeable future, technology compute has been gravitating to the cloud, to the core of the network. But we think that there's also a very interesting story here at the edge, and 5G will be critical. So we have companies like Qualcomm, which we haven't owned for years, back into the portfolio. Keysight is a testing business. We have some Marvell, which makes chips. Uh, Xilinx also chips for 5G base stations. So we really like that story. And then, just to be very clear, next year we should start to see smartphones 5G uh, capable smartphones. And so a company like Apple that we've owned for a long time, that we've had a very and remain very underweight versus our benchmark, might see um, a replacement, a bit of an upgrade cycle occur um, once 5G handsets are available. I don't hear any sort of UK companies in there. And, and I, I, I guess sort of retail investors will think, well, 5G, that, that must mean Vodafone. Why isn't he talking about Vodafone? Now, does that even come onto Polar's radar at all? Well, if you recall in the 90s, um, there was uh, you know this TMT thing um, where tech managers um, or where, where tech, media and telecom all kind of converged. Um, and we don't do TMT. Um, and just to be very clear about this, we've, we've never really been believers that the telecom operators were going to ultimately profit from the growth in data traffic that we've seen. And the data traffic has been phenomenal. Um, just think again, you know, Generation Z is, I think, 50% of them are on their phones for 10 hours a day. I mean, how that is even possible, kind of, you know, it's a, it's a head scratcher for me, but apparently they are. And yet, it doesn't seem to manifest as revenues for any of the telecom operators because of regulation or because of ultimately deflation. It just gets cheaper and cheaper to deliver these the, the growth in, in, in capacity. And so actually some time ago, not only did we rule out investing in operators, but we, we really also have been very um, careful investing in companies that even carry the traffic. And if you like, it's not dissimilar to the story of aviation. And again, if you're interested, or if any of your listeners are interested, um, I, we, we've written some pretty long and historic, you know, long and hopefully useful historical pieces in earlier annual reports that are on our website, and people can pull them down. But ultimately, we wrote a piece on the experience of the jet engine. It was genuinely fascinating, which is for the first decade of you know infrastructure spending post the the, the invention of the jet engine. Of course, everybody did fantastically well because people were building out, you know planes and they were building out airports and what have you. And so everybody did well and, and the industry grew. And then after that, actually it became very difficult to make money investing in the, the companies that carried the traffic. Uh, traffic, mm -hmm. I mean people and freight. And that has been exactly the same experience for operators and for genuinely for companies, even like Cisco Systems, some of the best one of the best tech companies in the world. Actually, when you look at the revenue profile of companies like them, but also Juniper and other ones that went to zero, like Nortel and others, actually, it's been very difficult to make money carrying the traffic. And all the money has been made, of course, by the companies that have been beneficiaries of the traffic, companies like Google and companies like Apple that's been able to sell smartphones at much higher prices than their competitors. So. I think, I know I probably ought to sound slightly more constructive than that, and maybe this time is different, and maybe there are some new revenue sources for operators to be able to participate in this time, like autonomous vehicles, like the industrial uh, IoT. Um, we think that we're, we're going to stick to our knitting and, and focus on the technology beneficiaries of all of these new applications and growth in traffic. Okay.
Okay. Well, well look, um, I, I, well, you mentioned earlier on about sort of uh, cash, and and and, uh, and you, the, the fund is about about five point nine percent cash uh, around that sort of figure at the moment. So, I mean, is, is that it? Sounds reasonably high. I mean, is that is that typical for uh, for polar capital, or, or are you keeping a bit more powder dry than than usual? Um, and sort of under under what circumstances might you gear up? <laughs> well, let's, gear do, up? let's do the gearing question first. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, we haven't used gearing for more than a handful of days in this cycle, and we can come back to that in a minute. Um, I, I, again, as a manager of an investment trust, I'm mindful of that, and I, I've always fallen back on the idea that our portfolio, um, the companies in our portfolio, ought to be able to deliver the growth without the need for the financial leverage that gearing involves, and that's been certainly borne out. Without wanting to sound arrogant, the companies have delivered fantastic returns for us without needing to kind of financially gear them. Um, there's also a lot of operational leverage in tech companies. If you think about the um, the incremental margin on shipping a piece of software, particularly now in the cloud, that incremental margin works both ways. And so when things are less good, when revenues fall, when IT budgets decline, when there's a recession, for example, that operating leverage will be pretty painful to our businesses, their P&Ls, and possibly their share prices, depending on what's happened prior to that. So the cash level today is a little higher. Uh, it reflects a couple of things. It reflects the top-down uncertainty that we've kind of probably bored our, your listeners with already, um, but that uncertainty relating to the timing and the shape of a trade deal, primarily. Um, and, you know, let's be clear, um, you know, it feels a little bit like, um, you know, the market is sort of like, a, like an airplane sort of, you know, circling, waiting for a kind of, you know, blue skies and, and, and assuming that we're going to have a soft soft, you know, gentle landing, whilst the actual conditions outside the aircraft seem to be getting worse. I mean, you know, the tariffs are going up, not, 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 not down right now. And so I think that certainly explains some of the cash. But the other reason, truthfully, is that we, we talked a little bit about it already. I've intimated that there's a whole bunch of companies that we would like to have investments in that are slightly pricey for us right now. And actually, as we speak, I mean, literally the last two or three days, there's been pretty heavy, you know, sustained selling pressure on some of these companies that, and we saw this in actually late 2014 as well, where the market identifies the winners and then bids them up to levels that are understandable on a 10-year view, but maybe on a one-year view are susceptible. Um, and really, the cash is there for that. And so, if we continue to see some of these companies, these stocks heading in our direction, you may see the cash level. In fact, yesterday I was dripping money into, you know, drip, dripping some money into those stocks, not, not new names, but existing names. And so, you know, more weakness in growth names over the coming days and weeks. And you should expect to see the cash level come back into a more normal two to three. As we, as we said at the start, you, you've been at the uh, at the trust since um, since '06. So, in that time, you, you'd have uh, you, you clearly made some good decisions. The fund's performance sort of uh, um, uh, you know, tells us that. But what about poor decisions? Is there anything that you've done that you regret or you regret that you haven't done? Well, I mean, gearing is one of the regrets. I've sort of said this somewhere else a while back. Um, it's sort of, um, you know, obviously if we had applied gearing throughout the duration of this cycle, that would have been fantastic for everybody. Um, whether or not I would have been as... Um, whether or not the portfolio would have ended up being a less punchy portfolio for the gearing is a moot point. Um, but certainly, I would I would like to have been more fully invested. I have actually been constructive throughout this bull market, and if, you know, again, all of the work that I've done, all of the pieces we've written, and running reports that we've uh, put together have always been 
constructive. So I guess you could argue I should have been more fully invested throughout. That's my, probably my biggest regret of the cycle. Um, other regrets, I mean, ultimately, no, not really. I think that we, as a whole, what we've tried to do in this portfolio, you know, I think the industry tends to focus on the big winners, and we could have talked about Google more and Apple more, and these have been fantastic for our shareholders. We bought them well with, you know, and have held them for a long period of time. Um, I think what we, what we do really well and, and again, sometimes we do this, this doesn't work, and that's why they become negatives. One of the things that we do, and one of the things that professional investors are really quite good at, um, and hopefully add value to their, to their shareholders, is selling stuff. And not selling winners, which you know, we could all wax lyrical about till the cows come home, but actually selling losers and, and you know, getting back 50p on the pound rather than watching an investment go to zero, avoiding stocks. And, and I think that's where I get you know, huge pleasure. It's not something it's easy to share with you about that. But where we've done the work, where we've identified that perhaps a company that's perceived as a winner may not be, where a new piece of news comes along and genuinely threatens a story, or indeed where a company has a negative development, uh, and I was thinking about Monetize actually recently, which is a company we owned in the portfolio, UK company, um, and how I think it was Visa had an option to take up some shares in the business and opted not to. And the stock was down very heavily the first day that that news broke and we sold all of our stock. Our stock. And the stock ultimately fell, I think, by 90% from its high. We've had some other companies like that in the portfolio, in fact, many, uh, because ultimately when you put together a portfolio of 110 stocks, you know that you're going to have losers in there. That's just the nature of the beast. And so. The frustration might be that occasionally we do that and it turns out not to be you know, what we thought and we end up uh, also reducing winners and maybe not running them to their fullest extent. If you think that we bought Apple at a stock adjusted price of about a dollar then and I bought 1% of the trust uh, at that time, then in theory Apple should account for the entirety of the trust at this point. So clearly along the route to a 200 bagger we've reduced you know, not, not as well as we might have. So there will always be regrets but I think ultimately you're trying to make like a pot, like putting together a portfolio of stocks. You're making a, a you know a collection of investment decisions, and that hopefully you're making better, you know, more more good ones than bad ones. Performance of the trust sort of bears bears that out. I think. I mean, I, I was going to give you a sort of a, you know, a last opportunity to sort of. You know, I, I asked what, what your regrets were, but you know, it's fair to ask you. Uh, you know, what's your what's your best decision? I guess oh, made in the, well, best decision was becoming a technology specialist when I was asked um, in my first buy-side job, would you like to do financials or tech? And, uh, and at the time, actually, I'd been, I was a stockbroker for a few years um, prior to becoming a, an analyst on the buy-side. And actually, Netscape had come public in 1995. Um, and I was probably the only person in the office that knew what Netscape was. So I, uh, I, I've always had a very healthy uh, interest in technology. I collect old computers, which is um, something my wife wishes I didn't. Um, and... And so, in hindsight, it was a very easy decision. But the best ever decision I made was becoming a tech specialist. The second best decision I made was joining Polar Capital, um, which has been a tremendous place, uh, you know, performance-driven. Again, I'm not being paid to, you know, just ultimately a great place to, to be um, and, and has provided us with the resources we've required and a kind of a culture, really, that has sort of second to none. So, in terms of investment decisions, to answer the question, I suppose it's a, it's a toss-up, really. I think Apple, by far, has been the best returner. Um, I bought, believe it or not, my first slug of stock on the 1st of May 2003. It was actually the first day I joined Polar. Um, and, and on the day, I believe, they had a headline that came out that said that they had... Uh, 
a million songs have been downloaded on iTunes. When you think about the numbers, it's comedy, right? Um, one million. But that seemed like a lot at the time, and it was indeed a lot at the time. And I bought the stock. I covered the index position, actually. We had zero at the time. But the one that I get probably the most pleasure from is the Google IPO, because it was very controversial. It wasn't in my benchmark. And uh, you won't remember, but at, at the time, you know, the, the two founders had done this slightly, uh, you know, interesting uh, interview with Playboy and they were being investigated and they ended up lowering the range on what was a very odd IPO process. It was a kind of a Dutch auction, reverse, reverse auction. And I went for the IPO um, and we bought stock. It, it, as I said, it was an 80 times forward PE. Uh, and then just to make things that much worse, of course, I was interviewed by someone and I I described the company as being bonkers cheap, which wasn't necessarily how I would have liked it to have been reported. Um, in fact, I think it was the first time I was ever quoted as, a, as you know, relating to, related to PCT. Were you were knack for writing headlines, because that, that would have been a good one. Yeah. So that's probably my favourite. And of course, the stock has, I think, a 20, 20 bagger since then. Um, but I think it was not that. It was that Google epitomises everything that we're after, which are companies that change the world, companies where they not just change the world, but they drive enormous returns for investors, where, but where a generalist investor or where a superficial glance at the valuation of a business might preclude you from buying the stock. But when you look back, and again, this is, these are numbers that are just mind-boggling, the company was valued at IPO at around $23 billion. The company now has over $100 billion of net cash on its balance sheet. The company is doing more than 30 billion in net income, having been valued at 23 billion IPO. So again, I'm cherry picking, you know, we get lots of stocks that we don't get right. But just that to me is probably the most edifying of our investment decisions. Seems like a good place to, to end it, Ben. But thanks ever so much for joining us today. It's been uh, incredibly insightful um, and, and very enjoyable. So uh, thank you, Ben Rogoff from uh, Polar Capital Technology Investment Trust. Thank you.